so they can't find the document. We are learning more about this week's blockbuster reporting that special counsel Jack Smith has an audio recording of former President Trump in 2021 seemingly admitting again on tape that he took a classified document with him when he left the White House, a classified document allegedly detailing plans of how the U.S. could attack Iran. That document. Well, tonight we have new reporting that Trump's lawyers do not know where that document is. They are unable to find the war plans Trump may have been casually waving around at his New Jersey golf club two years ago. Everybody check your golf carts, ask your caddies. Anybody see any stray plans for war in Iran? No. We are going to talk about that a little bit later tonight. But first, we also got some big news in one of the other Trump investigations. And it came out of Fulton County, Georgia, where District Attorney Fonnie Willis is investigating Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election results. Now, let me back up first. Do you remember this story from February about how Trump's campaign had hired a team of researchers to prove their bogus 2020 fraud claims, their their claims that the election had been stolen? Well, it turns out that when Trump's own researchers found there was no there there, Trump's campaign buried that report. That was followed by this story from April about how Trump's campaign had actually hired a second team of researchers to also try to prove the campaign's bogus 2020 election fraud claims. And that second firm also found zero evidence of election fraud. So Trump's campaign buried that second report as well. Now, tonight, the Washington Post reports that in recent days, D.A. Fonnie Willis has sought information from both of those research firms. She has even gone as far as to subpoena at least one of them. And what makes Fonnie Willis looking into these firms and their reports, what makes that so interesting, what makes it substantively different from other dribs and drabs we've gotten out of this investigation so far, is this. Quote, Willis's office has asked both firms for information, not only about Georgia, but about other states as well. I know that for a lot of people around the country, the moment Trump's get me 11,780 votes call became public, the case against him in Georgia seemed basically open and shut. There was Trump on tape using fake election claims to try to pressure Georgia's secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, to swing the election Trump's way. But in a court of law, the burden of proof is high. You have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump knew he was lying when he made those assertions that the election was stolen. And so in that regard, these reports and the firms that wrote them, they are key. Remember this claim that Trump made on that same call while trying to pressure Raffensperger to find him those 11,000 votes. The other thing, uh, dead people... So dead people voted, and I think uh, the the number is in the pro- close to 5,000 people, and they went to uh, obituaries, they went to uh, all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number, and a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters. Beyond that claim being bonkers, it is also incredibly specific, and Trump should have known at the time that it was wrong. One of the groups the Trump campaign hired to look into their fraud claims, the Berkeley Research Group, they had already debunked this. They found that there were at maximum 23 ballots that may have been cast in the name of a dead person in Georgia. 23. And they told Trump himself before his call with Raffensperger, quote, senior officials from the Berkeley Research Group briefed Trump 
then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and others on the findings in a December 2020 conference call. Trump knew. He knew, or at least he was told in no uncertain terms, that there was no fraud. No thousands or even hundreds of dead voters. So you can see why the DA, Fonnie Willis, would want to talk to the people that gave the Trump campaign that report. You can see why she might want their testimony. This was Trump himself being told by his own researchers with multiple potential corroborating witnesses on the call that his fraud claims about Georgia were false. And the reason that is so important is because the defense being made by Trump's allies right now, including by his former January 6th lawyer, Tim Parlatori, to my colleague Ari Melber this very evening tonight, is that prosecutors must be able to prove that Trump knew his election fraud claims were false at the time that he was making them. You don't think it's heading towards an indictment of Donald Trump, but you do think other people may ultimately be indicted in that? You know, I'm not sure, really. I I don't believe that it's going to touch my former client. In order for it to be something that you would criminally charge, you have to show that the claims that they made at the time were knowingly false. You'd have to show that, you know, for example, uh, my former client knew that there was no fraud in the election when he claimed that. Well, Fonnie Willis is now zeroing in on that proof in the form of those two internally discarded reports that showed Trump knew his lies were false at the time he made them. Again, the Washington Post reporting tonight that Willis's office has asked both firms for information, not only about Georgia, but about other states as well. These reports looked into the Trump campaign's bogus voter fraud claims in state after state after state, and they found no evidence that any of them were true. Now, Fonnie Willis is investigating a lot of avenues here. She's looking at the calls Trump made to multiple Georgia state officials, like Brad Raffensperger. She is looking at the Trump campaign's effort to get the Georgia state legislature to declare Trump the winner of the 2020 election. She is looking at the fake electors scheme, and she is looking at the Trump campaign's potential involvement in the unauthorized breach of election equipment in Coffee County, Georgia. And all of those efforts by Trump and his campaign are a lot harder to excuse legally when you look at the actual evidence compiled by Trump's own consultants. Trump's campaign had been told in December of 2020 by their own researchers that there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud in any of the states they looked at. So their justification for pressuring the Georgia state legislature, Trump's justification for convening the asking his campaign somehow to convene fake electors, their justification for everything in Coffee County, Trump's justification for what exactly he was trying to do on the call with Brad Raffensperger, all of that gets a lot harder for them to hide behind. Joining us now are former U.S. attorneys Barbara McQuaid and Harry Littman. Barbara and Harry are, of course, also MSNBC legal analysts. Thank you both for being here. Harry, let me just first start with your reaction to these subpoenas that we're finding out about in Fulton County and and how meaningful you think they are in building the larger case against Trump vis-a-vis his efforts to steal the election. 
So, Alex, I think they're very meaningful, but for exactly the reason you said, that is, they show that when Trump, January 2nd, is calling Raffensperger, he already has the information that it's a lie, and that makes a charge under Georgia law of solicitation to commit election fraud all the stronger. The reports also include sort of teasing hints that because it's out-of-state conduct, maybe Willis is stretching to make this case already pretty sprawling into a state RICO case, which would be gargantuan, because that also lets her sweep in criminal conduct from other states. I wouldn't be so sure about that yet, because as you say, there's a very good reason that she would need it without bringing RICO. And RICO would really make this case gargantuan. The history of sort of large, politically tinged uh, prosecutions in this country is not, not a happy one. So it would be biting off a much, much more than she has to. Can we talk about the RICO uh, chart, potential RICO case here, Barb? Because whenever Fonnie Willis's name is mentioned, RICO, racketeering, is, is like soon to follow. And a lot of folks think outside the DA's office that it may be a, a RICO charge that she's looking at for Trump. To Harry's point, how difficult would that be? And would she have to look at actions in other states or could she just look at what happened in Georgia? Yeah, I think the reason that we are hearing speculation about RICO is that Fannie Willis has a track record of using the RICO statute. And sometimes it's a very valuable tool for prosecutors. RICO can be thought of like an umbrella. It, it is allowed to sort of cover a whole variety of different crimes that are tied together. So, for example, it would allow her to charge in the same case uh, both the call to Raffensperger, the false statements to the legislature, uh, breaching of the equipment in Coffee County, uh, the false le- uh, uh, electors, all of that could come together as a pattern of racketeering activity. And so for that reason, it allows a jury to understand the full scope of the crime. But I share Harry's hesitation about going outside the state of Georgia and getting so much bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, a common phrase prosecutors use uh, in, in talking with their colleagues is, you don't need to boil the ocean charge your case. And sometimes, uh, you know, I think prosecutors want to track down every possible lead uh, to make their case as strong as possible. But at some point, you have to know that it's time to move on. And uh, I I would like to see her, even if she uses RICO, would be fine, but stick to what's happening in Georgia. Uh, You know, that's sort of her remit. Let the Justice Department handle the national scope. Yeah. So just to keep just to stay on this for one more second here, you can build a racketeering case in Georgia. Part of the reason that reporting has suggested that maybe this is a more national RICO case, which would be novel, is because these firms that we're talking about, uh, the ones that were enlisted by the Trump campaign to determine whether there was election fraud, they looked at state they looked at activities in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan and Wisconsin. And so it sounds like the thinking there, and this is the really outside the box thinking, is maybe Fonnie Willis is looking at Arizona and Michigan and other states and saying Georgia is but a piece of broader na- national fraud that was perpetrated by the Trump campaign. Is that, is that what everyone should understand about what we're talking about here? Yes, that is the hypothesis. And it's true that the Georgia RICO, which is expansive even for RICO laws, permit her to sweep in all of this stuff. Remember, the special grand jury, uh, if she follows that blueprint, she's already talking about 15 or more defendants. And RICO does, as Barb says, sweep 
everything in. It basically says that it's not just discreet crimes, but they are, you know, that basically Trump is the head of a whole racketeering enterprise. It was passed originally for the mafia. So it's there in theory, but I really want to second what Barb said. I think this goes for Jack Smith, too. It's now time, having gathered all the evidence they have, for them to pare down, not expand out. You the the Keeping your eye on the ball, which is conviction, rather than uh, sprawling charges, I think is what a seasoned prosecutor will do. Yeah, it seems like an opportune time to sound a cautionary note, right? Because I think if, and I would love to get both of your thoughts on this, even when you talk about the aspects of the Georgia case that seem most on their face wrong, potentially criminal, against the law, like the call to Brad Raffensperger, that's actually a pretty hard thing to prove in court. I mean, setting aside Trump's intent, the Washington Post point points out that, you know, Trump did not spell out explicitly that he wanted Raffensperger to break the law or find the votes. A lot of people say, will say, what do you mean? He said, find me 11,780 votes. Yeah. But Barb, really, the, 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 the bar is incredibly high in terms of what is actually criminally wrong in that conversation, is it not? It, it is. You know, I think people hear that and our gut reaction is that he's doing something wrong and he may, may very well be. But to prove a case in court requires proof of every element of an offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And our system is designed so that we would prefer to see 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person be convicted. And for that reason, uh, the, the rules are designed to ensure a fair trial for a defendant. And so you'd have to show that he, for example, did not mean, I just wanted the 11,780 votes to which I believed I was entitled in a fair and free election. I thought I had been defrauded and I was just asking Brad Raffensperger to remedy the fraud. I imagine the defense will sound something like that. Now, it's still good evidence. It's just not all the evidence. But I think if you can combine that with other actions that are going on at the same time, simultaneously, with all of these other aspects, Giuliani's lying to the legislature and they've got fake electors going on and they're tampering with uh, machines in Coffee County uh, and perhaps other conversations that Trump or Mark Meadows had before or after that date, then maybe you, the totality of the circumstances can prove the case. But I think that fall standing alone does not seal the case. Yeah. And well, there's also the town hall sound. <laughs> there's a town hall statement where a response that pre pre former President Trump gave just a few weeks ago saying, if this call was bad, I said you owe me votes because the election was rigged. The election was rigged. That would seem to buffet um, any prosecutorial case that this was a, a criminal criminal conduct on Trump's part. But I am not a lawyer and you are, Harry. And I would like to get your thoughts not just on the Raffensperger call, but even on the fake electors plot, which again seems on its face, how could that how could that not be something nefarious? How could that not be something criminal? But the reality is, and this again is pointed out in the Washington Post, that maybe the fake electors will say they had every right to pursue potential claims of anomalies, given the fact that Bar Biden's margin in, in, in Georgia, I believe, was two tenths of one percent. And they have already made the case that they they may have been convening this special electors meeting, but they had no idea that Trump intended on using the alternate slates of electors, those election certificate certifications to basically submit false slates of electors when it came time for certification in Washington, D.C. Do you think the fake electors case is is harder to prove than than maybe some folks uh, think it uh, is on its face? 
No, I think it's easier. I, you know, I see the bar, but I'd call it medium. I'm, you're not a lawyer, but you're a juror, and jurors are asked to use their common sense. These guys, 16 of them, signed a certificate saying Donald Trump had won, and they knew he had it, and that they, each signator, was the duly elected uh, and qualified elector, which was, you know, complete malarkey, and they had no basis in it, and in their closed-door meeting, etc. But we have, she, she Fonnie Willis, has um, enlisted at least eight people to be cooperative. They were part of the scheme, but they're going to be able to stand up, I assume, and say, yes, here's what we're doing. Yes, we knew he hadn't won. Yes, we knew we weren't duly qualified electors. And, you know, I, I like the prosecution's chances of proving beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, urging the jury to use its common sense. Barb, just to update that, in the, in the Washington Post reporting, they're saying that the DA has struck immunity deals with 12 of the 16 fake electors. And I wonder what you think that might signal as far as how this is all going to go down? Oh, I think that's a tremendous victory for Fonnie Willis to have 12 of the electors uh, who are going to cooperate. They're going to tell what the story was, why they were together, what they were doing, their purpose. There's also the evidence that David Schaefer, who was the chair of the state party, telling them that they, they should keep quiet about what it was they were doing. That's what evidence that prosecutors refer to as consciousness of guilt. If you think what you're doing is on the up and up and is simply a provisional ballot uh, in case things should turn out differently than you anticipate, there'd be no reason whatsoever to conceal it and to hide it and not talk about it. So that is another piece of evidence that suggests to me uh, that this is a strong charge. Yeah. And I mean, it's worth noting that we uh, 12 of 16 fake electors have immunity deals not included in that number. David Schaefer, the former J Georgia Republican leader, and, and Sean Still, who is now right. a Georgia state senator, but one of the people who was out, apparently outside the meeting of the fake electors trying to push the media right. off from covering right. what was happening inside the room, which, again, sort of sounds like consciousness of guilt, but we will see. Barbara McQuaid, Harry Littman, great to see you both. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Thank you, Alex. There is much more to come this evening, including more revelations in the investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified documents after he left the White House. And then as Trump faces increasing legal jeopardy, his loyalists in the House of Representatives are trying to lend him a hand. We will have more on that just ahead. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow.
Today brought some long-awaited and good news for former Vice President Mike Pence, not in the form of a 2024 poll where the former vice president remains mired in the low single digits. Rather, we learned that the Justice Department has given the former Veep an all-clear in the investigation they were conducting into the discovery of classified documents at his Indiana home earlier this year. In a letter obtained by NBC News, DOJ officials told Pence that they will not be pursuing charges and that the investigation has now been closed. So finally, some good news for Mr. Pence, who is expected to officially announce his confounding bid for the presidency next week. The same, however, cannot be said for Donald Trump, whose legal woes continue to worsen and who is already complaining about Mike Pence again. He posted on True Social today, quote, that's great, but when am I going to be fully exonerated? I'm at least as innocent as he is. But exoneration for Trump right now seems unlikely, especially after this week's reporting that the special counsel has obtained an audio recording of Trump acknowledging he held on to a classified document about a potential attack on Iran after leaving the White House. Crucially for prosecutors in that recording, Trump reportedly suggests that he would like to share the information, but was aware of limitations on his ability post-presidency to declassify records. The former president admitting that on tape would undercut Trump's longtime argument that he had already declassified all the materials he took with him when he left the White House. So this recording is a big deal. And it remains unclear tonight just how the special counsel obtained this very essential recording. We know it was made during a meeting Trump held in 2021 at his golf club in New Jersey with two people who were working on the autobiography of Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff. The meeting was also attended by several Trump aides, including Margot Martin, who often recorded book interviews that were granted by Trump, and Liz Harrington, Trump's spokeswoman at the time. But when prosecutors questioned Margot Martin before a federal grand jury, they already had the recording in their possession. So where and who did they get it from? Also today, we learned that the special counsel's office has sent a subpoena to Trump's lawyers seeking the actual Iran document referred to by Trump on this tape. And the former president's attorneys have been unable to find it. Where that document is located or whether it even exists, that may take some time to sort out. But as usual, Mr. Trump is not providing any answers. News broke yesterday that there might be a tape recording that, quote, where you acknowledge that you understood yeah. that these were classified documents. Do you, first of all, do you know who this call may be with? Do you know anything no, about it? No, I don't know anything about it. All I know is this. Everything I did was right. This is about election interference. Mar-a-Lago is a fort. It's a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. It's a hoax. Joining us now is former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official Chuck Rosenberg, who is also, of course, an MSNBC contributor. Chuck, it is great to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. I just I wonder how you what level of importance you ascribe to this missing document that uh, nobody nobody seems to know exactly what it is or where it is. Yeah, not as much as you might expect, Alex. What I think is important and you spoke about it in the introduction is the acknowledgement by Mr. Trump uh, on a recording that he understood the classification system, that there were limits on what he could do post-presidency, and that he couldn't share information because he wasn't able any longer to declassify uh, this information. 
It would be great for the government to get the document. If it's out there floating around, they certainly want it back for national security purposes. Having it could help corroborate other parts of the case. It would also indicate that there are additional documents not yet returned or found by the FBI. But I think the really important thing is that recording. You know, you, we, we talk about this document and it leads one to focus on the fact perhaps that this document we're talking about is not in Mar-a-Lago. This is a document that potentially Trump was waving around in Bedminster, which is in New Jersey. Now, at, at a point, folks were asking, well, when is that property going to get searched? And the conclusion was that there was not probable cause to search those properties. Do you think this at all establishes probable cause to search Bedminster? I don't. And let me explain that. So you need probable cause, which is a, comes directly from the Fourth Amendment, uh, to do two things. One, you have to demonstrate to a judge that there's probable cause to believe a crime has been committed. And two, just as important, that you're going to find evidence at, of the crime at the place you search. There is a doctrine within Fourth, America, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence called staleness. If the information you have about the thing you're looking for is old, Right, He allegedly waved around this document in July of 2021, almost two years ago, uh, then your probable cause would be stale. You wouldn't be able to convince a judge, nor should you try, to sign a search warrant if the only thing you have tying that evidence to that house is two years old. So the Department of Justice did exactly the right thing, Alex. They issued a grand jury subpoena for the document. If it exists, then it's incumbent on the lawyers to turn it over. And if it doesn't exist, maybe we find it somewhere else. But no, I don't think there would be probable cause today to search Bedminster, not at least on that basis. Can, can we talk about the recording itself for a moment? Because, you know, I don't I'm not sure that anybody can say at this juncture publicly where it came from. But the New York Times seems to offer a thinly veiled suggestion that maybe Mark Meadows has something to do with it. And Mark Meadows, as of right now, is a person for whom the Trump campaign says it hasn't heard from in a while. This mm -hmm. used to be the president's chief of staff. We have some reporting that suggests the Trump campaign or the Trump PAC may have been paying Mark Meadows legal bills. And now all of a sudden no one's heard from him. And there's a very explosive piece of potential evidence that may have come from Mark Meadows. How are you reading the tea leaves as it concerns Mark Meadows and whether or not he might be a cooperating witness at this point? Well, he would certainly be an important witness. He was the president's chief of staff uh, at the end of the Trump presidency. He was around him all the time. He had proximity. He would have spoken to him and heard what he was saying and knew what he was thinking. So he's an important witness. Whether or not he provided that recording, I don't know. Perhaps we'll find out one day, but it doesn't matter. There's a lot of ways through the federal rules of evidence, and I promise not to get too nerdy here on you, Alex, <laughs> Nerd to, show, out. <laughs> to show that the uh, recording is authentic. Anybody else who was in the room who could identify Mr. Trump's voice, who knew that a recording was being made, could authenticate it. That part is easy. Um, and you don't necessarily need Mark Meadows to authenticate the recording. He could, he might be able to, but there are other ways to do it, of course. 
What Meadows is important for, as I articulated, at least I hope I articulated it, is the fact that he had proximity to the president and would have known what he was saying and what he was thinking. The fact that uh, the Trump camp has not heard from him may suggest that uh, Meadows is cooperating. I would imagine that if Meadows had a good attorney, he or she would tell him, don't talk publicly about anything you might testify to. Keep your thoughts to yourself. There'll be a time and a place for it down the road. Um, Chuck, how do you square the tape that we have of Donald Trump and his statements when he speaks to people like Sean Hannity and in specifically his statements to Sean Hannity? I mean, what does this suggest to you about Trump as a sort of reliable narrator, both, you know, uh, to his lawyers and then as a potential witness in all of this? Yeah, so in a shocking development, Alex, he's not terribly reliable. Yeah. Uh, I don't put much stock into what he says uh, on television. Um, that said, he may never be a witness in his own case, right? He has the absolute right under the Fifth Amendment to not testify, to not present any defense. And I imagine, by the way, prosecutors would be salivating, salivating to use all of those extraneous statements he makes all over the place to cross-examine him. So not reliable, not somebody who ought to get on the stand and testify in his own defense. If we get to that point and he chooses to do so, uh, the cross-examination would be worth the price of admission. Well, yes, <laughs> that's an understatement. Really quickly, Chuck, we are told that this investigation may be coming to a conclusion very shortly, that there could be an indictment coming down the pike. Um, there seems to be some concern about where Jack Smith might try and uh, charge the former president if indeed he does that. Do you see this at all being an issue that Trump could fight a potential indictment in Washington, D.C., because Mar-a-Lago is, of course, located in Florida? Right. So venue is an elastic concept. Let me explain that, Alex. Venue is the place where you bring the um, the charges. It's where you indict and where you try the case. You can have venue appropriately in any district where the crime was begun, continued, or completed. So as long as the Department of Justice selects an appropriate venue, it could be D.C., it could be Washington, it could be somewhere in between, as long as they have an appropriate venue, I don't think Mr. Trump is going to be able to move it. He might try. By the way, remember, a lot of the January 6th defendants filed motions in federal court in the District of Columbia to change venue, and not a single one prevailed. So if, if venue is appropriate, and there are many places where it may be appropriate, the government's going to be able to keep the case where they charged it. Yeah, last I checked the White House in Washington, D.C., those documents came from the White House. Chuck Rosenberg, great to see you. Thanks for making the time this Friday night. You bet. Still more to come this evening. President Biden uses his first ever Oval Office address to celebrate a big victory while building bridges to his political opponents. Plus, Republicans in the House use their powers to represent the interests of one specific American citizen, a guy named Donald Trump. I'll explain coming up next. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night.
Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. There are some people that the Republican Party just can't seem to quit. Let me explain. Just last month, the Durham report was released. The report had been commissioned by former former Attorney General Bill Barr to look into the FBI's investigation into Donald Trump's Russia scandal to investigate the investigators, as it were. The right had been breathlessly awaiting the results, hoping that it would expose a vast deep state conspiracy. It did not. Even though the Durham report came up empty handed, it did spin out a new hypothesis for the right that Hillary Clinton and her campaign had colluded with the government to push a Trump-Russia conspiracy. And now, the GOP is running with that. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan now says he would like to see another investigation into Hillary Clinton. We're going to talk with our lawyers, we're going to talk with Speaker McCarthy on where we proceed from, from here. In fact, are there people that were, that were highlighted in the Durham investigation and the Durham report that we need to talk to on the Judiciary Committee? We're going to give that a good hard look, but nothing is off the table. For the record, it has been seven years, seven, since Hillary Clinton ran for president. We are now two election cycles removed from Hillary Clinton's candidacy. And yet it is still Groundhog Day. At the same time that we are seeing that play out, Congressman Jim Jordan also appears to be using the Durham report to prove that the FBI has had it out for Trump all along. This week, Jordan sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland asking the Department of Justice to turn over details on the FBI's role in the special counsel's Trump investigation. In that letter, Congressman Jordan complains about the institutional rot that pervades the FBI. And he asks the Department of Justice to disclose information about the use of FBI personnel by special counsel Jack Smith. This is certainly not the first time that Republicans have appeared to run interference on behalf of the former president. Shortly after Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg indicted former President Trump, House Republicans issued a subpoena summoning a prosecutor who worked in Bragg's office to appear before the Judiciary Committee for a deposition. It's a move that the Manhattan DA said was designed to undermine his office's criminal case against Trump through an unprecedented campaign of harassment and intimidation. And it's not just the Judiciary Committee. The chairman of the House Oversight Committee is now preparing to hold FBI Director Chris Wray in contempt of Congress for not turning over a document regarding unsubstantiated allegations about President Biden and his family. Mind you, the FBI has offered to make extraordinary accommodations to the committee in terms of this request, but even that is apparently not enough. Still to come this evening, a story that is sure to raise the blood pressure of your anti-woke family members. Stay tuned for that one. Plus, President Biden promised he would do it, and he did. What it means for his presidency and the country with expert guidance from David Plouffe. That is next. I want to commend Senator Speaker McCarthy. You know, uh, he and I, uh, we uh, and our teams, we were able to get along, get things done. We were straightforward with one another, completely honest with one another, respectful with one another. Both sides operated in good faith. 
Both sides kept their word. That was President Joe Biden just a short time ago giving the first Oval Office address of his presidency. Biden's speech underscored the bipartisan nature of the legislation that just passed the House earlier this week and the Senate last night. A bill raising the debt ceiling and staving off catastrophic default on America's debt. The president graciously acknowledged Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his political opponent slash counterpart in those negotiations. But he also used the opportunity to resell to the American public his administration's accomplishments from job creation to lowering unemployment numbers to signature legislation, including the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act. Biden made the case that what Democrats got in the bill was really the preservation of a remarkably strong legislative legacy. Joining us now is David Pluff, former White House senior advisor under President Obama. David, thank you for being here tonight. Um, Did any part of these debt ceiling negotiations surprise you? Well, I was worried for a while, Alex, that they wouldn't be able to land the plane. So um, I'm glad they landed the plane. Of course, this is a ridiculous uh, scenario. We're simply paying bills that we've already racked up. And the Republicans obviously had no problem raising the debt ceiling under Trump. But the good news is we're not going to have a massive self-inflicted catastrophic wound to the economy. That's most important, obviously, for the economy, for the American people, but also politically. Um, you know, that could have created a really deep recession as Joe Biden's heading into his reelection year. So I think you kind of clear the decks a little bit. Um, I'm not sure there'll be much more agreement in Washington than anything between now and the end of 24. Um, but um, so I was worried for a while that McCarthy couldn't find a way to navigate this. But they did. They actually got a lot more votes in the House than I would have thought, well over 300. So, um, you know, I think it's a good moment for the country because we got pretty close to really some catastrophic economic damage that would all be self-inflicted by our politicians in Washington. How do you look at it in comparison to how President Obama had to navigate a debt ceiling crisis of his own and the sort of extensive deal making that went on behind the scenes with Mitch McConnell? Well, Alex, it's deeply frustrating because, again, all we're doing is simply agreeing to pay the bills that we've already decided we're going to that Congress has decided we're going to rack up. That being said, I think Democrats always are at a little bit of a disadvantage in these scenarios because we tend to believe in government. We tend to be responsible. We don't want to shoot the hostage. Uh, and so I think my guess is Joe Biden in the White House decided the most important principle is not to default. Uh, and so we're going to hold the line as much as we can, but we're not willing to default. And that was the same principle Barack Obama had back in 2011. We got very close back then uh, to defaulting and, and the economy took some shocks because of it. Um, so I, I think that's the commonality is there's far too many Republicans, thankfully, not enough of them, but there's far too many Republicans who want us to default who want that talking point, who think it's simply the same thing as the government shutting down for a few days, uh, as opposed to basically sending America into a deep recession, if not depression. What do you think about the power of the fractious uh, right wing of the Republican conference that has voiced its displeasure with the deal that was carved out between Biden and McCarthy? I mean, is it your assessment that they are declining in power, that they were never serious about their demands, that they don't actually know how to negotiate budget policy. I mean, how do you read their position in all this and the sort of disregard in a lot of ways that McCarthy paid to them? Well, I think Kevin McCarthy also determined that he didn't want to fall. And I think that's probably a blend of, 
you know, I know it's quaint, Alex, but I, I still think some of our leaders care about, you know, the damage that can be inflicted on the economy and on people. But also politically, they have a very narrow House majority. He's got a lot of vulnerable House Republicans who won races in 2022 uh, that were probably in his ear saying we can't have a default that we're going to get blamed for. So I think those members of, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 of them that have the most noise, they were never going to be for anything. I don't think that was ever in question. Um, but I think McCarthy probably comes out of this a little bit strengthened. I mean, he's still definitely on probation. It wouldn't take much uh, for him to lose his position. Uh, but the fact that the vote was that resounding, you know, the overall number was well north of where I thought it would be, both in terms of overall numbers and Republican members. I think, you know, makes it clear that that faction is less powerful in reality than perhaps sometimes we treat it. Uh, you, and I know you're going to I know what you're going to say, which is don't 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 take the debt ceiling off the table as or maybe you won't say this, but like, let's get rid of negotiating over the debt ceiling. Setting oh, no, that yeah. aside, what what is what is the lesson for Democrats as you look at how Biden handled this, because first of all, more more Democrats than Republicans voted for this. Right. They put aside their own potential, you know, deep seated reservations about parts of this and ultimately were the adults in the room. But that was due in no small part to the fact that the White House, I think, made over 140 calls over the weekend trying to kind of like walk Democrats up to the line to get them in order to, to assuage their fears. I mean, what is the lesson there about retail politics and, you know, communication with your constituents uh, from in terms of the White House and the Hill? Well, it matters. You can't take it for granted. Uh, secondly, one commonality between 2011 and, and this agreement is Joe Biden. You know, I was in rooms with him as he was on the phone with Mitch McConnell and many Republicans, many Democrats back in 11. Uh, apparently he did the same thing this time. I mean, he is good at this. Uh, he is trustworthy. Uh, he basically, uh, you know, you can count on him to know his numbers, both in terms of a whip count, but also the budget numbers. He listens. Um, and I think he puts a principle of what am I trying to get done here? And at the end of the day, he didn't want to default. So I think we can learn a lot from that. I also think, you know, people have to understand that most Democrats believe that things like defaulting in a self-inflicted wound by politicians in Washington is not why they ran for office. Like there's real harm. So uh, there's a performative aspect of politics now where far too many Republicans are really just trying to get likes on social media or get booked on the Fox News and other programs like that, as opposed to treating the job seriously. And I think most Democrats still believe at the end of the day, even if it's painful to negotiate, and we shouldn't have to do that, even if it's painful that we have to make some concessions, and I wish we didn't have to do that, that at the end of the day, default would hurt a lot of people. It would really be, um, you know, a, a mortal wound to our economy, an economy, as you know, right now, um, you know, is not as strong as any of us would like it to be. So it really can't withstand a shock like that. So Joe Biden's really good at this. And I think most Democrats are still serious about the job of governing, even when it's unpleasant, even when it's unfair. Because at the end of the day, you know, you're there to help people and help the economy, not hurt it. Yeah. And that's why more of them voted for this than Kevin McCarthy's party, which wanted the negotiations to begin with. David Pluff, thank you so much for joining me on this Friday night. Really appreciate it. We have one more story for you tonight about a longstanding wrong that is being righted. We will explain after a quick break. Back in 2021, in the final weeks of Donald Trump's presidency, Republican lawmakers issued a rare rebuke 
to the commander in chief. They joined with Democrats to issue a check on Trump's executive power by overriding the president's veto of a major military defense bill. It was the first time Trump's party stood up to him in this kind of way, and it proved to be embarrassing in more ways than one. Part of the reason why the former president vetoed this big defense bill to begin with was because it included a provision that required the Pentagon to strip military bases of their Confederate names. But removing the names of traitors and slave owners who fought against this country and lost, that was apparently a bridge too far for Donald Trump. In the end, the Senate voted overwhelmingly, 81 to 13, to override the president's veto. And it commissioned, and a commission was established to recommend new names for those bases. This year, the Pentagon began that mission. One of the bases on their list was Fort Lee in Virginia, named after the leader of the Confederacy. In April, Fort Lee officially became Fort Greg Adams, named after two black officers who fought fiercely against segregation in the military. Very fitting. And starting today, the Army's largest base, Fort Bragg, will now be known as Fort Liberty. The North Carolina base has officially given up the name of its unpopular Confederate namesake, opting instead to honor one of the founding principles of this country. That is our show for tonight. 